Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a high school social studies teacher and a middle and high school principal, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher, and this, of course, is All the Above your place for news and analysis of all things education related. If you're listening to the podcast, thank you very much. Please remember to um, give us those five stars on iTunes or whatever you're listening on and um, hit that follow button if you haven't already. If you're watching on YouTube, please make sure to hit that thumbs up. And uh, if you're watching us on Facebook, hello to you and make sure you share this page with your friends. All right, Jeff, what's on the agenda for today? Well, Manuel, as always, we have a good one for people. Um, and I'm excited to say that uh, that good one includes some wise words from, from this guy right here. We're going to be uh, digging into uh, an interesting phrase that is thrown around in our yes, profession. Yes. You know, it's for the kids. We got we to do it's it for, for the, the kids. kids. Put, for the the kid, kids. put the kids first. Students first. first. We have an organization yes. called Students First. When I was in New York, we had the Children First Initiative. We, we love putting the students first, don't we? So we're going to unpack that language just a little bit. All right, can't wait. First up, though, is the do now. Let's take a look at some recent headlines in education. All right, it's time for our do now. Let's take a look at some headlines in education. Jeff, how are we doing the do now today? Well, Manuel, uh, I know it's testing season across the state of California. Indeed. So in the spirit of assessment, we got a pop quiz. Pop quiz? Yeah. Man, we got to do the state testing and we still got pop quizzes. Yeah, man. That, man ELA, just... math, science, APs, finals, oh. and a pop quiz. Let's go. Man, can we just watch movies still summer? <laughs> Dang. Yes. All yes. right. Well, then, what's our first pop quiz question? All right. Pop quiz, Manuel. Pop quiz. How long do the effects of teenage pregnancy last? Hmm, the effects of teenage pregnancy? I mean, I guess a lifelong of, of family and bonding and happiness, I suppose? I, that is one theoretical approach. Um, you will be surprised to know that uh, despite the fact that teen pregnancy rates have fallen by two-thirds in the United States of America oh, wow. since 1990. Yeah, hmm. uh, so two-thirds drop. Um, a recent peer-reviewed study published um, in the journal uh, PLOS-1 finds that having a grandmother who had her first kid as a teen is a strong predictor for whether a child will underperform in school, even for a child whose own mother gave birth as an adult, not a teenager. So That's wild. Totally, right? I mean, uh, we're looking at intergenerational, like, uh, you know, effects potentially of teen pregnancy being carried on beyond just the, the immediate circumstances. So uh, I was completely blown away by this. Uh, what are you thinking? Yeah, yeah. In the study, they found that a child whose grandmother, not their mother, but their grandmother um, had a child, gave birth as a teenager. Um, that child is... 39% more likely to place in the bottom 10th percentile of scores measuring whether kindergartners are ready for school than a classmate whose grandmother and mother became parents as adults. So again, we're talking about children whose grandmothers were teen moms. Mm. They, even if their own mothers weren't teen moms, they are 39% um, more likely to place in the bottom 10th percentile for 
school readiness as kindergartners. Yeah. That's yeah. wild. Yeah. I, you know, to me, uh, there was a, an initial kind of gut reaction to mm -hmm. this where I felt a little bit of like defensiveness because mm -hmm. I know uh, several women who were teen mothers and who are, you know, I've worked with as colleagues right. over the years or who are friends of mine who have, you know, like had good lives and raised other, you know, their yeah. kids are now in college, right? And, um, and they're certainly not what these uh, statistics would capture. But it did give me, you know, just a, a whole different perspective on like the intergenerational right. uh, struggle to escape from, uh, you know, from poverty and from hardship. And certainly, you know, being a teen parent is not um, the only indicator of that, but it, right. it, it's certainly one. Now, the other thing that I felt about this is like nowhere in here did we talk about the dads of the that of is these true. teen moms. That is so, true. Uh, you know, we don't have any what data to share that? about that. But I was like, um, they didn't get pregnant by themselves. So, right. you know, what's what's going on there? Um, but I think it speaks. Uh, you know, before we jump to conclusions about the moral failings of teen mothers, mm -hmm. um, you know, this really speaks to the way that poverty works yeah, in the exactly. United States and the way that, you know, people who are, are struggling are put in situations and forced into right. situations where this kind of thing is more likely to happen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, and the authors correctly point out that this is really a consequence of poverty more so than a consequence of, of giving birth at a young age. And like you said, seeing that generate uh, that intergenerational impact, I think that's something that, um, you know, a lot of us don't think about really at all. And, and this is the area of the research that has been understudied. And it's really interesting to see that, you know, the, the grandmother having a child as a, as a teenager and, and, and maybe that child grows up to not be a teen mom. However, that poverty is, is, is still there, still linked. Um, so I, th I think, again, this is just another emphasis on the, the many, many, many ways that poverty is inextricably intertwined with the student's academic success. Um, so when it comes down to those young men and women sitting in your class and you're focused on mm. teaching math or teaching science or whatever and focusing on that test, uh, again, just another reminder that it's so much bigger than just the, the curriculum that's in that classroom. Mm -hmm. And um, if anything, this is not eye-opening in, um, in, in the least, but it is another powerful reminder of um, really the challenges that, that we face. Yeah, just a quick data point to, to sum that up. Mm -hmm. uh, the study found that school readiness uh, for kindergartners was highest among children for whom neither their mother nor their grandmother was an adolescent mom. And right. that, you know, you might expect they were 76% ready, mm -hmm. um, but of course was lowest among children with the opposite situation with both a adolescent mother and adolescent grandmother, they were only 54% ready, right? Yeah. So we like to think of, you know, like America's the land of opportunity and you know, right. hopefully we can be that. But uh, this data certainly gives us some, some sobering thoughts to think about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Next quiz question. Let's see, let's see. Question. In the wake of what many call the Me Too movement, how many states require schools to now teach about consent? Well, I, you know, I would think, I mean, it's been such an, such an important uh, cultural phenomenon in our, in our society. It's got to be like you know, maybe maybe we've got a couple holdouts like Mississippi and Alabama or something, right? So I'm going to say 46. 46 of the 50. 46. Nice. Heard this it man, here first, folks. This man believes in America. I believe. This man is an optimist. <laughs> um, 44. You're wrong. <laughs> You're way wrong. Um, all right. So 
in a uh, article in LA School Report that um, looked at sex ed across the United States, um, they found that just 24 states mandate sex education in schools, and of those, only 10 require that it be medically accurate, and only nine require that it include consent. So nine mm -hmm. of the 50 have consent as part of the sexual education that students are receiving. Nine. Yeah, that's a lot less than, than 46. It's quite a bit less, <laughs> quite a bit less. Yeah. So uh, law, lawmakers in a handful of states are trying to pass bills to update uh, sexual education across, um, across schools, especially in the wake of um, all the reports that mm -hmm. we've been hearing out of, out of Hollywood and, and, and out of powerful spaces of uh, assault and uh, harassment and, and all that. So uh, some lawmakers out there are dutifully trying to update the, uh, the way we teach youngsters about consent and sexual health. And despite their efforts, it's still a uh, very, very, very long way to go before we get to uh, America's children actually learning about these things. Yeah. Uh, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I have to say, this is another one of those stories. When I saw the headline, I was like, that, that can't be right. 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 Um, and then when I looked at the little map in the article, which you can click on and see, yes. and I realized on our website. The, the state I spent most of my career as an educator working right. in, New York State, does not require legally sex education. And I was like, really? I, I couldn't even believe that I had worked right. uh, in a state with, with, with that situation. So I think this just speaks to, to like several layers of things that um, are, are just such urgent needs, right? So we're human beings. All of us came into existence. Uh, maybe there's a few who are in a, a very special scientific uh, situation. Mm -hmm. All the rest of us came into being because two other human beings had sex. This is, a, this right. is a perfectly natural aspect of human growth, development, and uh, I just can't imagine, apart from your conservative personal religious beliefs, mm -hmm. which are fine for you to have, but you have nothing to do with education policy in our country, uh, I can't imagine how we can consider ourselves to be providing a just education to young people without teaching them about their own development as biological animals who are going to experience sexual urges and their own sexual maturity and how they came into being in this world one right, right. like how can we say we're teaching people if not teaching them about the very basics of how you came to exist yeah and two so many of the issues we're having around rape culture consent issues etc right like education is the way we get through these things some of that comes from home but certainly school has a big role to play in that in my mind as well and so we're we're clearly in the vast majority of states just dropping the ball in this oh, yeah. area like i big it time. was staggering i didn't i knew there would be places where this is like controversial right. and places where it's not but I was shocked to see such a small number of states. Yeah. Um, so, you know, California is, is one of the states mentioned in the article is, is trying to do something about this. And California in uh, 2016 started new legislation to mandate teaching of consent as part of a holistic update of sex ed standards and health science standards. And in the article, they mentioned conservative pushback uh, towards California's efforts to have sex education taught in general and also have uh, specific conversations about consent and also about gender identity. And um, I was actually present at one of the meetings mentioned in the article mm. uh, because I'm a commissioner on our Instructional Quality Commission and, and we had to vote to approve the frameworks for how to teach the new health science standards and uh, vote to approve that to, to, to move on to the Board of Education. And there were many hundreds of 
of people who came up to give public comment against this. And, and the main fear that, that we heard in those public comments is this fear of state indoctrination and these topics not being age appropriate and home being the place where uh, young people are supposed to learn these things. But unfortunately, um, that hasn't worked for many, many generations in terms of learning about it at home, because if it had worked, we wouldn't have this uh, crisis that is, is, is in our faces now that has always existed when it comes to um, sexual assault and harassment and all these, all these uh, challenges that we have if we have been teaching our students appropriately at home. So uh, I, for one, am glad that uh, California is, is one of the states trying to do something about it, yeah, but for, for there sure. to only be nine states talking about consent, man. Crazy, yeah. crazy. And I, I wanna actually just connect the dots. I'm glad sure. we did these first two stories together, back that, to back, right? Because we saw, even with the very imperfect uh, yeah. <laughs> status of sexual education in this country, just the little bit we did do, right. along with like giving kids access to condoms, and and certainly like there have been people in pop culture who helped, you know, with some general literacy about safety and and uh, you know how to not become pregnant if you don't want to be. Right. We saw a two thirds drop in uh, you know teen pregnancy. Right. right. And uh, imagine what we could <laughs> could accomplish if we actually really tried yeah. all together. Right. So all these folks out there, I'm, you know, I. Yes, I just disagree with the more conservative stance on this, uh -huh. but I, I, have, I almost feel more strongly than just agree, disagreeing. I feel like it's, we have a separation of church and state in this country. There is no good secular argument to not have high quality sex education and human sexuality education that mm -hmm. includes things like consent, right? Right. Um, in every uh, state in this country, uh, it's just, there's no good reason not to. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. I can't get down with it. All right, one last quiz question. What we got, what we got? Here we go, pop quiz, Manuel. Uh, question is, what happens to all that food in the school cafeteria that doesn't get eaten? Hmm, well, if you're a student in California, then it's probably likely picked up by seagulls because I like to hover <laughs> around California schools. I've known it since I was a kid and uh, pick up all that loose food that ends up on the floor and in the garbage. Mm, yes, okay, yep. Uh, so I think we're done here. We are done, thank you. Congratulations, folks. <laughs> uh, so that, that's certainly a reasonable hypothesis, but um, the real answer we are mm -hmm. seeking here, um, as described in a recent Washington Post article by Kayla Epstein, um, tells us about a very interesting approach to this issue being taken at a local elementary school in Indiana. Um, they have a food rescue nonprofit organization called Cultivate that has stepped in to repurpose leftover cafeteria food into frozen meals that uh, students who are food insecure can take home with them and to their family over the weekend. Uh, so what this looks like is the students are getting a, like a, a small cooler. The cafeteria workers are like taking leftover food, kind of packaging it a little bit, placing it in the coolers sending it home with the little ones uh, over the weekend. And they talked about, you know, being able to have, you know, a choice between like uh, pancakes and, you know, some other stuff for breakfast and drumsticks for lunch. So um, <laughs> interesting stuff. What do you think? I think it's a fantastic idea. Um, I mean, on the one hand, obviously the, the, the crazy amount of food waste. Now this, you know, these, this area uh, in particular, Elkhart, Indiana, I don't know what their food waste is looking like, but I know at schools I've worked at, you know, bell rings and, and a whole bits of school lunch are being tossed into into the garbage that, you know, barely get touched. Um, so on the one hand, I mean, 
off the bat, I love the idea of doing something with that extra food. I also love that it's something that supports students at that actual elementary school because as, as, as mentioned um, by folks who involved in this program, a lot of students rely on that free or reduced lunch um, for the meals, but then over the weekend or when they're not at school, they don't have that and that's a, a, a problem. So for um, Cultivate to, to work with this elementary school and repackage it and, and, and get it back to the students so that they could take it home, take some of these meals home for the weekend, I mean, what's not to love about that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, it's just a beautiful story, right? And um, I mean, my assumption is that the food waste they're talking about is the leftover stuff in the cafeteria that, you know, still meets. Probably. I'm, I, I hope they're not digging not through the, the garbage stuff for the food. kids left out in the I'm yard. I'm just highlighting the table, that right? there is a lot of food that ends up not being yeah. you know, eaten. Yeah. So I could imagine this also being something that encourages more like, you know, take what you are actually going to eat. Right. Yeah, and, exactly. And let's not create more waste. But, um, you know, it's just a great I really want to give a, a shout out to this organization, Cultivate, doing, you know, just just great work, seeing a need, organizing a, you know, simple, low cost way to meet the need. And uh, I mean, what what tugs on the heartstrings more than kids who are hungry? Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Fantastic. All right, folks, that does it for this episode's Do Now segment. Up next will be a discussion about our favorite phrase in education, which is that it's all about the kids. Stay tuned. There's a great lie that educators in schools across the nation love to declare. It's one of those statements that if you're in education, you damn sure better pledge your teacher allegiance to it. And that, my friends, is the great lie that it's all about the students. You'll hear it at the staff meetings. Remember, it's all about the kids. You'll hear it at PD. Folks, this is about our students. Policy meeting, we're doing this for the kids. Department collaboration, it's not about us, it's about the kids. While I wish this maxim were true, the fact is that schools are most certainly not about the students. We'll say it's about the students and then in the very next breath, we'll create or sustain the most undemocratic adult-centered structures we can think of, completely devoid of any real student input. It's about the students, but we don't let them give input on the class syllabus. It's about the students, but we don't let them co-create the dress code with us. It's about the students, but we don't let them help decide what the course offerings are. It's about the students, but we don't let them have any say in what the bell schedule is. It's about the students, but we don't let them be part of budgeting decisions. It's about the students, but we don't trust them to be part of any real meaningful decision-making about their own educational experience. What do we let them do? We let them come in, sit down, and follow our commands. We take up all the educational space with our commands, directives, and our we-know-what's-best-for-you attitude. In most schools, little, if any, space is left over for students to be themselves, to show their unique brilliance in their own ways, and to be recognized as real people with real voices and ideas. We're training kids to be democratic citizens in the least democratic ways possible. It's no wonder so many students develop an animosity towards school at such a young age. And let's be real, the browner and blacker the kids are, the less democracy they're ever going to see in school. They don't show up to a space that values their humanity and believes with sincerity that it's all about the kids. No, they show up to a cold space with more rules than rights, more security officers than school counselors, and more animosity than appreciation. Maybe this is why the late Nipsey Hussle went from a star student to a high school dropout. 
He was smart enough to teach himself how to build computers out of spare parts, but the school system wasn't smart enough to find a way to embrace him and his brilliance. I'm sure his schools said that they're all about the kids, but it doesn't really seem like they were. Our increasingly connected world means, of course, that schools are no longer the gatekeepers of knowledge. A student doesn't have to listen to me lecture about Archduke Franz Ferdinand. She could just ask Siri. So if we're not making decisions that are truly about the students, then what are the students even getting from us? There are a lot of brilliant young people out there who, if given space to express their own voice, humanity, creativity, and curiosity, would excel in our schools and help us create a more equitable and just system. Lifelong learners like Nipsey Hussle are sitting right in front of us in class and we don't even know how brilliant they are because we give them no space to be themselves. We don't ask them what they would like to see in our class. We don't ask them what community guidelines we should follow regarding student or adult dress codes and behavior or what forms of assessment they prefer to demonstrate their learning. We really don't ask them about anything regarding their own educational experience. We say it's all about the kids, but that's a lie. It's only about them to the extent that they follow our decisions and our commands. The fact is, it's all about us. And in my humble opinion, we need to get over ourselves. Wow, man. Well, uh, as usual, I appreciate your, um, you know, very thoughtful and insightful words. Mm -hmm. And um, and I also want to say I appreciate, um, you know, one of the great things about this show, I think, is the the classroom teacher and the out of classroom administrator right. perspectives and the kind of back and forth we bring. And, and I think the topic you, you brought up um, mm -hmm. and spoke so well to really, um, you know, really captures that, right? Like brings us back to thinking about what's happening in the classroom and democracy uh, in the classroom, yeah. right? A student voice and these kinds of things. So, so really looking forward to, to unpacking this a bit more with you. And, um, you know, I, some of the words I must admit that you spoke like kind of um, raised, I don't know, some sort of feeling inside me where I was yeah. like, I don't know, but how do you, like, how do you operationalize that in a way that doesn't become a mess, right? Yeah. And like, I know that you're a teacher who can do that work well, and who does do that work well in his classroom. I try. And I know there's other folks that like really struggle a lot with yeah, the, yeah. the relational aspects, right? And like um, handing over power to students can be done really, really well when they're gonna use that power constructively, right? And so I guess I'm wondering like, how, what do you think about how we can um, expand uh, what you're talking about in terms of like really being for the kids and empowering right. students in that kind of democratic education way in a context where people's skill sets vary a lot. Right. I think part of it is just having an actual discussion uh, amongst uh, educators about this idea that students actually are bringing a lot of worth and a lot of value to our classrooms already. I think it's kind of a, a unspoken assumption that students are just coming in as like blank slates and it's our job to like run everything and fill them with knowledge. And that is a very problematic way to view it, especially in schools that are serving marginalized populations, especially in schools, like I mentioned, um, you know, the browner and blacker the students, the more uh, stringent rules and regulations you seem to, uh, to get, especially when it comes to like security and, and on-campus police officers and all that nonsense. Um, so I think it starts from having a conversation about uh, youngsters is actually being capable of of having real honest input and honest voice in mm. 
everyday classroom pr uh, procedures, but also uh, educational policies. I mean, it's their educational experience here that we're, we're dealing with, and we just totally just assume that we know what's best always. And even though this generation um, is unlike any generation previously in terms of students and, and what they're um, experiencing as they grow up in this technological age. So part of it, I think, is just the conversation with teachers on like, you know, to what extent do you actually consider students to be worthy of having power in your classroom versus you just like being the, the, the commander of the room all the time. And that conversation alone, I think, is like the starting place. Yeah. Yeah, I know, uh, you know, definitely for me and my practice, uh, you know, as I evolved as a as a teacher, I think the the times when I got to and, and, and the later uh, part of my teaching career where I think I've had a better understanding of what mm -hmm. you're talking about, right, where I was able to, for whatever reason, move more away from my own like need to control right. to a place of if I actually want to get the learning that I want kids to do, like if I want them to own the importance of this information, right. then I've got to, like, I don't know how to get that. You can get them to remember stuff, yeah, right? And do all right on the test and, and that sort of thing. But if I really want 12th graders to talk deeply about like, here's how this election you know, cycle is working. Mm -hmm. Do you like it? Do you not like it? Do you think this is fair? Do you not think this is fair? You know, um, and have something intelligent to say about it and engage with their families about it, then I have to hand over, uh, you know, uh, at least enough of the yeah. power and, and control in the classroom so that they are the, the owners and drivers of what we're doing and what we're talking about. And um, I wonder, like, what was your evolution on this? Have, have yeah. you kind of always been this no, way? No, definitely did you... not. It, it came late. It came really recently, actually. Um, you know, my first several years in teaching, I was like RoboCop in the classroom, man, like big time. <laughs> and, you know, I, I wrote about this this topic in much more detail. I'll, I'll link uh, to my uh, blog post about this on our website. But I had all these all these rules because I just thought that's what you're supposed to do. So like no turning in work that's written in pencil. It has to be in pen because pen is more professional and no little frilly things on the side of the paper because that's unprofessional. It's got to get those frilly things off and mm. all these all these rules. And um, I don't think any of it contributed to students learning anything more. And, you know, I told myself, like a lot of teachers tell themselves that you're, you know, teaching students how to be professional, how to be, um, you know, adults, but you're not. In fact, you're really turning away a lot of students who already don't like school. And now they show up and maybe they're actually excited about this lesson, but because of these draconian, draconian rules that you put over them, like they're not even thinking about the lesson anymore. They're thinking about why you don't seem to, to uh, care about them or give them any voice. And how, as a social science teacher, how could I teach about democracy without ever having students have any input in it. So it really only is was within recent years that I realized that actually when I release a lot of this power and a lot of these little ways that I flex my power, um, the learning still occurs. And if anything, it occurs in a uh, much more positive and much more uh, welcoming fashion. Like I, I think my students today are, are learning much more than my students that I had in the early years of my career, mm. even though I'm not forcing them to only write in pen. I mean, I, now a lot of the work is digital, but still. Um, and even though I'm not like punishing the whole class for a certain amount of students coming in later or being unruly. So it's something that happened over time. And again, I wrote about it in an article that has a lot more detail, um, especially for classroom teachers that want to know what this looks like in practice. Um, but it's something that I had to learn over time as I realized, you know what, what am I doing preaching these high ideals and not following them within my own rule, my own classroom. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I, I think there is, we, we said at the outset, this uh, the phrase, you know, for the kids, right, mm -hmm. as being, um, you know, as being kind of just a, a common phrase that's used a lot in our profession. And sometimes it's used more in the political context of our profession, you know, folks who like yeah. want to be the education mayor and we're going to do it for the kids, right? Um, with the arm movement. <laughs> yes, that's important. You can't yeah. get elected without that. <laughs> you can't that. be for no the kids without you. the arm. Nah. Uh, you know, so, and I get like on a certain level, right? I work for an organization that's mm -hmm. a mission-driven organization and part of our purpose is to empower all students with a high right. quality education, right? So, um, so I believe in that, but I also wonder if there's like a, you know, there's, there's an easy out when you use that language that's mm -hmm. sort of, well, I can say I'm about the kids and now I'm like on the right side of whatever issue I'm talking about yeah. um, that can come as sort of insulation from the from scrutiny or from self-examination about like, but in what ways is the, are the decisions we're making, are the policies we're making, are the, you know, choices of our curriculum or whatever um, actually uh, supporting the kinds of, you know, democratic ideals we say we're about with students in in actual classrooms and in actual schools. So what, what do you think about that? Yeah, and these are, I mean, I think easy things that, that we could do when it comes to, you know, basic campus policies like, you know, I mentioned dress codes, for example. Um, my school recently had, a, a, we had a walkout, we had a student protest over um, our dress code and it, it became newsworthy, especially locally and, and online. And um, it became this whole big thing. And it's something that could have been totally avoided if students felt that they had actual say in what their dress code is. And I don't think there's any reason not to invite students and community members together to have a conversation about what are we trying to reflect as a school? Um, what would the best policies be that reflect the values of the community? Like, there's no reason not to do that. And if anything, that, that shows students that, uh, for one, democratic, uh, de uh, being part of a democratic process um, is something that is, is, is valued and important, but it also shows them that their voice matters. And if they believe that their voice matters, they'll be more inclined to work with us on, on things that they might not be so, so into. And I had a student, um, I guess this is one of the, one of the things that really had me thinking about this. I had a student a few years back who was a very, very, very heavily involved gang member. And I only had him for about a month because he tended to transition from, um, freedom to not freedom quite a bit and from school to school quite a bit because uh, he was in the foster care system and uh, mine was the the one class that he wanted to spend time in and uh, security would bring him to my class sometimes when he was acting up in another class because that's the only place where he would actually calm down and sit so I had these extended conversations with him and what I realized was that like he enjoyed my class and my atmosphere my climate really not because he got to do what he wanted because he didn't get to do what he wanted but um, I actually listened to him and had conversations with him and, and showed him that I actually do care about his experience and I was trying to learn a lot from this kid because his experience was so different than mine growing up and um, he just had a totally different affect around me than mm -hmm. others and it's not because I allowed him to get away with anything it's not because I personally identify with his lifestyle at all it was just because I was like listen first and then guide him second and if he's if his response was like that he's probably a student who had more I guess um was, was more likely to, to express his displeasure with his surroundings than other students. There's probably quiet students in my class that are the exact same way, will totally tune me out if they get the sense that I'm not really valuing them. He's more outspoken about it, and he was more, uh, I guess, a, a concrete example of a student that's not really trying to work with you if you're not really trying to uh, um, recognize his own value. But um, 
you know, a lot of students out there, I think, across our, our, our nation are sitting in class and could care less about what's happening because they feel like they're not being seen and that they don't matter. And, you know, that's something that teachers really need to think a lot more about and schools need to think a lot more about. Yeah. So you're making me think also about like the um, there's sort of the individual side of empowering uh, students in the way you're describing. And then I think there's kind of the the like um, institutional side right. or whatever. Right. And so most student uh, or most schools have like a student government or an ASB or a, some right. some entity that is elected or nominated or chosen somehow to kind of represent student voice in the school. And, and a lot of larger schools in particular might have multiple entities that kind of mm -hmm. take different forms, right? And so um, I tend to think, I, I'm curious to get your take, because I, sure. like, I tend to think that these are really important institutions. And I was like the student government advisor uh, in, in my school mm -hmm. and, um, you know, really felt passionately about um, that body as an important, like, cultural force right. and voice in the school. But I also think that part of what you're speaking to is, um, is uh, bigger than that. And I, um, I wonder what you think about, like, the relationship between the point you're making and also these, like, formal bodies right. for student voice and democracy in schools. Yeah, and I can only speak to the schools that I attended and have taught at and uh, when it comes to those sort of formal bodies. And I was student activities director um, for uh, four years uh, myself. And the students in those groups tend to be a little bit different than the rest of the student population. They tend to be higher achieving. They tend to be um, more likable in the traditional sense of just being friendly and, and having great relationships with all their teachers and coaches and, and what have you. And a lot of times they're not that representative of, of the wider student body. And, and in even more cases, um, their powers are really relegated to really simple, basic things like school activities, dances, and, and what have you. And even though they do speak at board meetings and, and other things, I don't know of a lot of cases where they're, what they say is actually taken um, with the same level of seriousness as what like other folks in education say. So a lot of times they're treated sort of as like these cute little groups that high achievers are part of to, to give the, the guise of some kind of demographic uh, democratic process happening. Um, and again, that's only speaking on schools that I attended as a student and that I've taught at. Uh, very important bodies, very great um, aspects of educational experiences for students that are involved in that, but I just don't think that really um, represents those, you know, D students and C minus students and F students who feel like schools just don't care about them and feel that school is really just a prison. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Manuel, as usual, uh, you know, provocative, thoughtful, powerful words today. So appreciate your uh, your assessment of the situation. And uh, folks, uh, if you have not already, we definitely want to encourage you to go check out all of our material. It's on our website. That's AOTA show. Dot com. Again, that's AOTAshow.com. You can find past episodes, links to our channel on YouTube, our podcast on iTunes. Uh, please give us a like, a five star, a subscription. All that. Um, all that. We appreciate we your support. We need the love. We appreciate your support. Next up um, is our class dismissed. All right, people. We've come to that time in the show, class dismissed, where we like to shout out awesome people doing awesome work in education. Jeff, what do we have for today? Well, I'm super excited, Manuel, because yeah. uh, I think something that many of our viewers may not, or our listeners too, may not know about mm -hmm. our show 
is uh, we we obviously film at a school. Yeah. Um, the show is staffed, written, produced by educators, um, yeah. and and you know people see us all the time, but yeah. they don't realize that actually there's a third member of the of the trio here that makes this show possible. And so all the technical work, the lighting, the real you know the reason you can see our faces and hear our yeah. voices um, has a lot to do with it with the third member of our group. The, uh, the wonderful Mr. William Abanye, graphic arts teacher. Uh, come on out here, Mr. Mr. Where you Abanye. At? Where you at? Um, he is also the, the organizer of our crew, which hey. is uh, students. So people might not know, our, our show is uh, created and produced by, uh, by a student crew who yeah. uh, Mr. Abanye brings to us. So um, we want to give a shout out to the great William Abanye and uh, I, actually, let, her, let everybody see him finally. <laughs> yeah, um, actually I have a question. I, have you ever actually heard him speak? I know he hasn't spoken on yeah, the show, but I haven't actually. I don't know. Does he talk? I, he mostly just points to mostly, things and yeah. adjusts cameras and lights and Action all that. And, yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Maybe one day we'll <laughs> we'll see if he could actually speak. <laughs> uh, we got to get him a different mic for that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, folks. That about does it for this episode. Um, please remember to hit our website aotashow.com for all the links and all the previous episode videos. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time.